Well, it is always a joy to worship with you, to sing praises to our God. And we turn now to God's Word. We want to hear Him speak. We want to open up a passage of Scripture to hear what it is God has to tell us today. We go verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. That's our normal diet. Our meat and potatoes and even our dessert comes from God's Word expositionally preached. And it's always in His providence, it's always in His timeline that we look at a book of Scripture. Of course, as I make a, a book, to, a decision on what to preach on, uh, I feel like, you know, that's my decision, but ultimately it's the Lord's decision. He wants us to spend a few years in Romans. And we've been looking just at the introduction here to the book of Romans. We're just looking at what it is Paul has to say about himself about the church in Rome. And particularly in this paragraph we're looking at these last few weeks, what is it Paul is praying for? Not only what is he praying for, but why is he praying it? What is Paul's goal here through his prayer to God for the Roman Christians? A group that he's never met, a church that he's not been to, a church that he did not plant. What is Paul praying for? And so we're on now our third week looking at chapter 1. The paragraph is verses 8 through 15. So let me read this to you. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness As to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There's a lot we can learn from the prayers of the Bible. I had a uh, seminary professor who wrote a four-volume commentary just on the prayers of the Bible. And it's so helpful to dip into that commentary set and focus just on the different prayers that show up in Scripture. And we often, almost in every letter Paul writes, see an opening prayer. He wants them to know that he's praying for them. He wants them to know that he is having a communion time in prayer with God and that they are the subject of many of his prayers. We've looked here at Paul's prayer. We, we want to model that prayer even in our own church. While we're not apostles, while we're not writing to the church in Rome, we want to model what we learn in the life of Jesus and his prayer time, but also in his apostles. And it's a very important topic for us to look at. What exactly is Paul praying for? Because if he thought it was a priority then, then we should consider that and ask, are these things priorities still today? Is this important for us? Is the word of God, does it have something to say to us today? Does it have a word for us? And I think that it does. We've already looked at verse 8. If you guys could put on the screen, part 1 of praying for the church was giving thanks for the body. We're to give thanks for the body. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago and looked at how Paul gave thanks for them. And even cross-referenced it with other passages of Scripture. How is it that Paul is giving thanks for them because he does it through Jesus Christ, the mediator. He is giving thanks because their faith is well known. It's being proclaimed throughout the whole world that there is an actual church in Rome. And he is thankful for that. The whole Roman Empire, at least the Christians in the Roman Empire, have heard about this church. Not because they're perfect Christians. Not because it's a perfect church. They've heard about it because they're surprised that amongst the center of the pagan world, where the emperor himself is worshipped, there is a true church. There's a group of people who worship the one true God through Jesus Christ. 
Then the next uh, couple of verses, verses 9 and 10, part 2, we looked at intercession and petition. Paul says he intercedes for them. He, he prays for them unceasingly. We don't know the specifics of his prayer. We don't know exactly what he's asking God to do for them. We can, we can guess it has to do with what he says in the rest of this paragraph. We can guess that it is about growing in the Christian faith, persevering through trials, through tribulations. But he does intercede for them. The Holy Spirit intercedes for Christians before the Father. Christ intercedes for us. And we intercede for one another. We must pray for one another in the church. And he goes on to petition God directly, even for his own prayer request. He says that he would like to come and see them. That he prays to God. He petitions God that he may succeed in coming to them. That he may have a good road, literally a good trip, and actually get there if it's in God's will. It always comes down to God's will when we pray. We can pray the best prayers we've ever prayed in our life. But if that's not God's will, if it's not his timing, it won't happen then. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we've prayed wrongly or that we have sinned and are under discipline. Sometimes it's just not God's timing. And Paul will talk more about what's kept him from coming to them a little bit later. But today in this third part on praying for the church, I want us to look at strength and encouragement. We need to pray for strength and encouragement. That's what he's praying about here with the Roman church. He's not only praying for that, but he's going to be a part in making that prayer request come true. God is going to use him as he travels someday to Rome. But right now he's saying, I want to come to you. I've asked God for that. And he gives us the reasons why. He gives us the reasons why. And this is helpful because it's a good application for us. These two things, strength and encouragement, they're two applications that transfer right into our Christian life. We can pray these same prayers for our church. We can pray it for other biblical churches. We can pray it for the true church worldwide. This is a good model of what to pray when you pray for the church. So the first thing he says here, if we're just going to look at these two applications now, the very first one, we need to pray that we are established by the preaching and the teaching. This is key. This is vital. We, we cannot have a church at all without biblical preaching and teaching. And if we have preaching and teaching, we need to take it in and let the Spirit use it in our life so that we are established, so that we are strengthened. Here's how Paul says that. He says, first of all, I, for I long to see you. This is why he's been praying to come to them. He longs to see them. He longs to be with them. And he's just mentioned how regularly he petitions God for that. Always in my prayers making requests. If perhaps, if, if God wills it, he says, at last I might come. And the idea here is that he had such a strong desire to go to them. A very strong desire to go and be with this group of Christians, many of which he had never met, many of which he had not known. But he knew that good would come of it. If he could be around other believers, there's always good that can come of that. And he wanted to go. He wanted to serve them. So he says, I, I long for it. I, I desire it. I mean, this is a pastor's heart here. Yes, he's an apostle. But when he's there at these churches, he, he's serving in a pastoral role, even as an apostle. He is the preacher. He is the shepherd when he is there and he is teaching them. And here's this pastor's heart. He says, I want to minister to these people. I want to go and, and help them and minister to them. Now he often longed to see the church. Do we, do we long to see the church like Paul? Listen to him in some other letters. Philippians 1.8 For God is my witness how I long for you all. I, I strongly desire for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We long for our brothers and sisters in Christ like this. First Thessalonians 3, 6. Timothy has come to us, he writes, the Thessalonian Christians. Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. So Paul says, I've heard good news. You want to see us, you long for it, you strongly desire it, and we want to strongly be there as well. We want to come. We want to be 
with God's people. Just before he's about to die, Paul writes a last letter to Timothy. And he says this, I am longing to see you. Again, the same word here. I'm longing to see you, Timothy, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Timothy's going to be in tears because he's hearing that Paul's about to die, that he's ran the race, that his time is up, that he's fought the good fight. He knows he's about to die when he writes 2 Timothy. And what does he say? I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. We want to be around the body because it fills us with joy. He tells us why he wants to be there so bad. So that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That's why he longs to be there. He wants to give them something. He wants to give them something. He is not mentioning here first what he might receive from them. He will at the end of the letter. He'll talk about an offering that they might give to help him to go to Spain. But he's not focused on what he might get, but rather on what he might give. That I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That's his main reason for wanting to go to Rome. He's got something to give them. He's got something to bless them with. Now, some people look at this verse and they say, Paul wants to go and give them the spiritual gifts that we often see listed in his letters. 1 Corinthians. Later in Romans, he'll give a list of spiritual gifts. In Ephesians, he talks about office gifts. And I preached a two-part series on the spiritual gifts a few weeks ago. Some say that's what he's talking about here. The problem is, he's not... Speaking in that same way, he can't even talk like that because Paul doesn't give spiritual gifts. Nowhere in the Bible does an apostle give spiritual gifts. They can lay hands on people. They can even prophesy if they have the gift of prophecy about a spiritual gift, like what happened with Timothy. But Paul himself cannot give a spiritual gift in the sense of uh, the gift of teaching or the gift of mercy or the gift of serving. Only the Holy Spirit, only God gives spiritual gifts in that sense. So what's he talking about here? What does he mean by giving them a spiritual gift? Well, he's using this term more broadly. It directly relates to everything he's going to say in Romans. He wants to write a gospel-oriented letter here. And then he wants to come and see them so he can bless them with a spiritual gift. That is tied together. This gift he wants to give them. He wants to go there. He wants to do even more than write a letter and explain all the doctrine and how to live out the Christian life. He wants to go and apply it to that specific church. He wants to go and preach the word to them. He wants to expound on all of these truths. That's the gift he wants to deliver. Preaching and teaching. He wants to teach them the word of God. He can't give them an actual spiritual gift that he's going to list later in the book. But he's giving them a general spiritual gift in the teaching and preaching of God's word. Can you imagine to hear the Apostle Paul preach? That would be a blessing. That would be a gift. We go to Shepherd's Conference with some of the guys in the spring and we hear gifted preachers. And it's an extreme blessing. We hear the singing from all the men and we joke about how this is just a little taste of what heaven might sound like when we're singing there with all the believers. That's nothing compared to What these early Christians heard from the Apostle Paul. What a blessing. And he wants to go there and help them. He wants to give them this gift. What is the teaching that he's talking about? He's talking about teaching the word. He wants to bless them with the spiritual gift of teaching the word to them. To instruct them on the content of the Bible. So you can imagine not only preaching, which we'll look at. But teaching the Bible in small groups and house to house. Or in Ephesus, he started a little seminary, a little school of the Bible. And he did that for three years in Ephesus. He wants to teach the word, but he also wants to preach the word. This includes preaching to unbelievers, preaching the gospel to unbelievers in Rome, but also preaching the gospel to believers. Remember, he said the letter to the Romans is about the gospel. Well, the Romans are Christians that he's writing to. That means he wants to open up the gospel and explain all the doctrine, all the major doctrines that he wants them to learn and live out. You see, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's for believers too. And we all know that, but we need to be reminded of it regularly. The gospel is just not simply repent and believe in Christ. That is the first thing that people hear if they're an unbeliever. But the gospel is also how do we live for Christ? What do we believe? 
about Christ. What do we believe about God? The Bible, the Holy Spirit. So he's going to expand that. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 15 later, you can see where he just gives the main points of the gospel. But in Romans, he's going to open that up and say, it starts all the way in eternity past with God's election and the fact that you're depraved in your sin and that God saved you and Christ died for you and you can never lose that salvation. And here's how you live it out. All of that is in the overarching umbrella of the gospel. So he's going to teach them that and he's going to preach that in their church services to unbelievers when he goes out on the street. What's the difference in teaching and preaching? Well, preaching would include more than just explaining what the passage means, but also exhortation, application, illustrations, persuasion, confrontation. All these are elements of preaching, correction, so much more. So think about teaching the Bible like a Bible study, small group study. That is imparting knowledge, the knowledge of Scripture, and teaching you and explaining you what it means. And Paul did that, but he also preached and preaching is so much more than just teaching. Now you need to have teaching and preaching. And we see that in Paul's sermons. We see that in Peter's sermons. There is teaching there. But there is also exhortation. Telling people what to do now that they've heard the Bible explain. So he says, when I come, I want to give you that blessing. I want to give you that gift. He's not patting himself on the back saying he's the best preacher in the world. He's simply saying... I'm an apostle for the Gentiles, and I want to come, and I want to teach and preach the word. And he doesn't even quite know how that's going to apply to them directly. He'll get into the details of that. Look at the word some. Do you see that word there where he just says some? What does that mean? Some spiritual gift. That means he's not quite sure exactly the problems that are going on there. He hasn't been there. He doesn't have regular updates and reports. But he'll know when he's there how to apply this teaching, how to exhort them. So again, I think that's more evidence that the spiritual gift is teaching and preaching. But even better evidence is the next phrase. Paul wants to go to Rome to teach and preach. Why? So that you may be established, he says. This fits with preaching and teaching. He wants to establish them, strengthen them, build them up in the faith. This is the main reason that I believe he is imparting this gift of his teaching to them. It's the purpose of him going there and giving them the spiritual gift. The word here for established is a key word. It's in Greek, it's stay ridzo. To cause to be inwardly firm. To, to be committed. To confirm, to establish, to build up, to strengthen. We might even say to edify. He says, I want to come there. I want to give you something so that you'll be edified. You'll be strengthened. That's his mission. His mission to Gentile Christians is to build them up in the faith. In Acts, Acts 18, verse 23, it says, Having spent some time there, Paul left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening, same word, strengthening all the disciples. He's already planted these churches, but he comes back through for what purpose? To strengthen them, to build them up. Because the day you're saved, you don't just suddenly get zapped with all the knowledge, all the practical living, and everything you need to know and do for the Christian life. You have to learn it and grow, and you're being sanctified, and you're growing in godliness. And the teaching and the preaching is where that starts. You need to hear the Word of God to know what to believe, to know how to live. And so he went back through these churches and he strengthened them by teaching them even more. He tells the church in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he says, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. They already have faith in Christ, but they need to be strengthened and they need to be encouraged. And so he sends Timothy to do that thing. Now, I don't think Timothy went there. And just sort of went out and then played some games with them and had a good time and, and had a meal. I mean, sure, he had a good time with fellow believers. But he is teaching and he is preaching and he is praying for them and he is praying with them. That's the idea here of being strengthened. An old writer, a pastor named William 
plumber, said, we all need this. We all need this strengthening. The strongest follower of Christ is as weak as water, except as his ways and principles are confirmed and strengthened by divine truth and all sufficient grace constantly minister to him. Let no man glory in his wisdom or strength or sufficiency, but only in the Lord. We need the Lord and we need the Lord's word to strengthen us. Don't think you can do it yourself. Don't think that Christianity is as sort of set at home and just me, myself, and my Bible. You know, it's sort of a joke in Christianity that the Trinity is, is me, myself, and the Holy Spirit. As if we can rediscover all the, the doctrinal truth that men have been studying for 2,000 years. Now we go to the Word and we need trusted men to explain it and to teach it and to preach it. This is what Paul talks about in his letter to the Ephesians. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.11. Paul is writing to them about the gifts. Now he's actually talking about what we're familiar with as spiritual gifts here. And he's saying that the Christ went and he declared victory. And he has these gifts after his resurrection. He has these gifts to give to the church. So Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some. So he starts a list here. And these are office holding gifts. Some as apostles. So those are of the highest authority here, apostles. And then he gives a list of others in the church, prophets. And we talked about how apostles and prophets, when I went through that series on spiritual gifts, how those were in the early church and not still here today. Some as evangelists. These are people who go out and and mostly proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. And then he says some as pastors and teachers. These are those proclaiming the word, teaching the word inside the church. So an evangelist is going out, and the pastor and the teacher is, is, yes, evangelizing through the ministries of the church, but focused on strengthening, on building up the church. Now, he expands on that. He says, I've given some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So you can be equipped, so you can be strengthened in your own personal faith and walk with Christ. The saints are Christians, every true believer. Why are they being equipped? For the work of service. Why? Why are we serving one another? Why are we working in the church to serve one another? To build up the body of Christ. Again, this idea of building, strengthening, edifying. Why do we need pastors and teachers? Is it to entertain us? Is it to just take up a nice 30 minute or 40-minute or 50-minute block of time at church? No, the gift is for preaching and teaching to build up the body, ultimately. And that's through each person serving based on what they're learning and hearing and living out in their life. Teachers teach the Bible. They edify the church. Pastors or shepherds or elders, it's all the same. The main way they shepherd is through the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word, whether that's from the pulpit a classroom, beside the hospital bed. They're ministering the word. This is imparting a spiritual gift to the church. This is what Paul, I think, had in mind when he says this. He wants to strengthen them by teaching and preaching the word. The office of a pastor, the office of a teacher even, that are listed here, they are gifts to the church to strengthen, to teach, to preach. Now, pastors and teachers today are supposed to impart the Word of God, the same as Paul is doing. We're not apostles, but we're supposed to teach and preach the Word of God. That is our main role according to the Word of God. Pray for the church and to build up the church through preaching and teaching. That's the main role. Pray and preach. Pray and teach. A lot of churches, a lot of pastors want to talk about physical needs. They want to talk about money. They want to talk about cars. They want to talk about houses, marriages, children. All things that the Bible does touch on, but again, the focus is not necessarily on an exposition of books of the Bible. Other pastors want to talk about emotional needs. What kind of emotional needs do you have? How can we fix those? There's even one uh, famous pastor during COVID. It said, Pastor Rick continues his series through the book of James, the book of James, by providing 10 commandments for emotional health during a crisis. Now, I've studied the book of James, and I don't typically think of it as Ten Commandments for emotional health. That's not to discount emotions or physical needs. 
But does Paul say, I want to come to impart a physical gift? Does Paul say, I want to impart an emotional gift? What does he call it? Spiritual. Spiritual. Why does he call it spiritual? What did he impart to them? What is he doing? A spiritual gift. To be sure, he cares about their physical needs. He doesn't want them to waste away and not have food. He doesn't want them to be distraught and an emotional wreck. But he realizes that by imparting a spiritual need, that is going to then go through to the emotional, to the mental, to the physical part of a person. You see, that's where it's got to start. The Word of God is, first of all, spiritual. Yeah, it's letters on a page, but it's a spiritual book that he's given us. And Paul says, I want to come and preach and teach and impart that to you so that it will help you. He's not going to teach them how to have the best marriage ever in the history of mankind and the best love life and the best wealthy business. That's not the goal of the Christian life. Now, if we practice the principles as a Christian that are taught in Scripture, we will have a better marriage. Hopefully our business will, will go better as a result of that and so on. But again, what is his direct main issue is to bring them a spiritual gift. The preaching is spiritual first and foremost. And it addresses the greatest need we have. What's the greatest need we have as Christians? This battle with sin and the fact that we need to be saved. And even as a born-again believer, we need to be sanctified throughout the Christian life. And we have to go to the Word of God first. And we need to hear it taught. And we need to hear it preached. How did the apostles describe the church? Did they describe the church as a place of entertainment? Did they describe the, the church as even a place just of fellowship? As important as fellowship is? Here's how he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, Be on the alert. This is how he closes 1 Corinthians. They've got all this mess in the Corinthian church. And what are some of his parting words? Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. What kind of language is that? What kind of language is that? Go with me to... 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see more of this battle language. 2 Timothy 2, 3. 2 Timothy 2, 3. What does he say here? He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Hardship, suffering, soldiering. Yeah, that's what he says. And no soldier, he says, in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Yeah, soldiers have to eat, they have to sleep. But their goal is to follow what their commander tells them to do. Our commander is Jesus Christ. We're his soldiers. And we are living the Christian life, and we are to focus on what our commander, Jesus Christ, has told us. Verse 5. He also puts us now in the athletic realm. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer, now he talks about farming, and farming is hard work. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What kind of language is this? Be on the alert, stand firm. In Ephesians, he says, stand firm against the devil. Stand firm against this battle that we're in. That is military language, athletic language, farming, hard labor language. That's why some have said the church shouldn't be seen as a cruise ship, but a battleship. We're not just sitting here having fun on a cruise ship. We're training for battle. We're training for the battle we know is to come. And every day we're training and we're understanding what our role is and what our position is, what we're supposed to do. Yeah, we're going to have a fellowship meal afterwards. Don't think that it's not joy in the Christian life. We're going to have good times together. We're going to have fun together. There's some kind of women's Christmas party coming up where I heard there's going to be a great gift exchange and food. Yeah, those are part of the Christian life. But if we put our focus on those things and even elevate them above the preaching and teaching, then we're becoming more like that cruise ship instead of the battleship. Paul says, I want to impart a spiritual gift to you. And if you receive that, he knows that all other aspects of their life will be blessed. Not perfect, not prosperity gospel, but blessed. A lot of Christians want less teaching in churches. Less teaching in churches. Shorter sermons in churches in the world today. 
less church services, less Bible studies. Paul's not coming to Rome to see the sights. I'm sure he will see them as he walks through town. That's a nice byproduct of coming to minister there. But that's not why he's going there. He's not going there to watch gladiator games. He's not going there just to party it up with them. He's going to worship with them and to build them up in the faith through his preaching and his teaching. He prays that he can go to Rome to build them up so that he can establish them, so that he can edify them. Because he knows they need a stronger foundation. He knows that trials are coming, that persecution is coming. He knows that sin struggles are coming in each individual's life, and he wants them to be ready. And you can't be ready just sitting back, doing your own thing, and not learning from the Word of God in a body together. He knows they need a stronger foundation. Here's what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this. He said, The reason for a church being a church is in its mutual edification and in the conversion of sinners. So he starts off with this paragraph here just saying, there's two reasons a church exists. To build up one another in the faith and to take the gospel to sinners outside the faith. And he says, if these two ends are not really answered by a church, it is a mere name, a hindrance, an evil, a nuisance, like the salt which has lost its flavor. It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. May we all in our church fellowship be active and the energy of the Spirit of God. May none of us be dead members, he says, of the living body, mere impediments to the royal host, baggage to be dragged rather than warriors pushing on the war. So he understands this is, this is more like the military idea instead of, oh, let me drag these Christians along. He says, may we, every one of us, be soldiers filled with vigor to the fullness of our manhood by the eternal power of the Spirit. He wants to go to Rome. Paul wants to give them the teaching of the gospel, the teaching of the word of God, so they can be built up. We need to pray for that as well. We need to pray that that happens in our church. You need to pray for me. You need to pray for Frank. Anybody who teaches the word here in any way. And then we all need to pray for one another to receive the teaching, to follow it, and to be ready when the trials come so that we know the word. And we know what it says. So that's all just number one. Number two, second thing that he's praying for, the reason he wants to go there, and we need to do the same, we need to pray that we are encouraged by one another's faith. We need to pray we're encouraged by one another's faith. This is verse 12. He starts off by saying, that is... And a lot of people say, well, he's correcting himself. He messed up in verse 11. He sounded too prideful because he's only talking about what he's going to do. And now he needs to correct himself. This is more of the liberal interpretation of this verse. He's not correcting himself. He's just explaining more of what's going to happen when he comes there and gives them this gift that will strengthen them. Paul uses this phrase to clarify. That is, that's, that's the phrase, that is. He's clarifying it. He's explaining it more. He's given more of a reason for him to go there. He says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. I mean, look at this language. Do you see how many times he's talking about the whole group? He says, he's going to receive something. I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Three times in that short little phrase, he is talking about all of them, the whole church. He is going to receive something. He wants to be with them so they both can benefit from the application of Scripture in the church. That's what he's getting at here. He's coming there to deliver the teaching and preaching, the gift. They're going to be strengthened. And as a result of that, as a result of that, they will be encouraged all of them together, including Paul. He's excited. He wants to go there to experience that. Not for just a thrill, not just to feel good, because Christians love to be around solid biblical Christians. We love to be together. We do. In fact, I told a pastor one time 
He said, what are y'all doing in this church? What are your activities? How many nights? Home groups, all that. And I told him, he said, you're doing way too much. You're going to burn out. I said, well, we got help. We got faithful men and women. We have people that uh, show up to these things, and some don't. But Sunday's our primary time to come together and worship. And everything else is a blessing. You get to choose if you want to come to home group or not. We encourage all of that. We encourage people to come to the Wednesday night Bible studies because it's time to be around fellow believers. It's time to experience that joy. And Frank and I will be here and we'll be serving and everybody that's volunteering will be serving. And we encourage our church to be as involved as you can. It's not a command in Scripture. You have to be here every time the door is open. I'm not here every time the door is open. Frank's not here every time the door is open. But we love to be with the body. So he's excited. He wants to be there so that he can practice the one another's with them. And they can practice with him. As iron sharpens iron. You heard this proverb? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Or one woman sharpens another. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. It's not about being around the church too much. It's not about having too much teaching. It's about this mutual encouragement that we receive together with you while among you. What a blessing. What a blessing. To encourage is what he's talking about here. So let's dig into what does this word encourage mean? Well, it means the word encourage in the Bible means to come alongside someone and help them. And there's two main ways that this word is used to come alongside and help somebody. Either by comforting them in time of need or by correcting them, exhorting them when they need to have exhortation or correction. So we typically think today of the positive side of it. We think encouragement is you come alongside and you build me up and you you help me to feel better about whatever's going on in life. Maybe it's even a biblical feeling better in the sense of encouraging me with scripture. We don't typically think of encouragement in the negative sense here, which is to correct, to exhort. But both of those are vital to the church. You need both. You need a group of believers in the church, hopefully the whole church, that will come alongside you and they will encourage you when they need to do that. And they will exhort you. And you want shepherds that do that. And you want elders that do that in the church. This Greek word, parakaleo, has that idea of both correcting and exhorting. And it's biblical encouragement. It's not uh, psychological encouragement according to psychology or according to the world. It is biblical encouragement. The idea is he's preaching and teaching them, and they're going to be strengthened, and they're going to build one another up, whether that's exhortation or comfort or both. When you read Paul's letters to the Galatians, or you read James's letter, I mean, these are, these are, especially James, it'll hit you right here in the heart. Do you feel more encouraged in the exhortation sense or in the comforting sense? Now, there's a little bit of both. But if you read James's letter and you read the letter to the Galatians, there is a lot of exhortation, a lot of challenges right to the heart, like arrows going right into our heart, making us think about ourselves and the Christian life. Can you imagine someone going up to James, saying, you know, James, I read your letter. It's not very encouraging. It just didn't make me feel well. It just didn't encourage me the way that I wanted it to. He would say, look, I think that's the most encouraging thing I could write. I see these problems in the church. God has inspired me to write this letter, and he wrote it, and it has helped us all the way up until today. The same with the Galatians, the same with all of Paul's letters and all the New Testament and the whole Bible. So look how he explains this, though. How is this encouragement happening? He says, each of us by the other's faith. I mean, he just goes on. We're together. He's with them. He's among them. Each of them by the other's faith, both yours and mine. How is this going to happen? Through each believer's faith. That's how it happens. That's the means of the mutual encouragement. Through each other's faith being lived out in the church. Well, how does that work? Well, as their strength and as their faith is built up, and faith isn't just your initial faith, but your ongoing faith in Christ being strengthened and built up. You'll learn more, you apply more, you look more like Christ in your life, 
you live out a life of more and more godliness. And as that happens, that faith will cause a growth in the whole body, not in numbers, not in people necessarily, but in depth. And your love will be shown, and your service will be shown, and everybody will be encouraged. Everyone who knows you, everyone who sees that, will be encouraged. What does it mean to be encouraged by one another's faith? Well, let's just look at some examples at the end of Romans. Paul mentions a few examples that he's looking forward to when he gets there. These are not all the encouragements, but there are a couple here. 15.24, Romans 15.24. Whenever I go to Spain, so he's planning this trip to Spain. He's going to go through Rome. That's when he's probably going to see him next, he says. He didn't know what was coming. For I hope to see you in passing, to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. What is he looking for? What is the encouragement that they're going to give him? Well, the company, he's going to enjoy that. And he's also praying and hoping that they will help him financially with this mission trip. It's more than that. He's not just coming for money. He's coming to teach them. He's coming to preach them. He's coming just to be around them and also for them to bless him in any way that they can. Jump down now to verse 29. I know that when I come to you, he says, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He's coming with the idea of blessing them. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So he says, I'm praying to come. Please pray. Strive together in your prayers that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So he wants to serve them. He wants to be among the church in Jerusalem. So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. And find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of all peace be with you all. Amen. He's looking to come there and be refreshed by them. That's why church ought to be a place of refreshment, of joy. We shouldn't bring all of our troubles and struggles and expect that we have one big troubling session here of everybody's sin struggles. Not to place some encouragement. We all know that we sin. We don't need to come here and remind each other of that. The Bible will tell us over and over that we're sinners. We need to be encouraged. We need to be comforted by one another through the Word of God, through using what we learn in the Bible, through applying what we learn in the Bible, and build one another up. In Hebrews 10, verse 24, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the faith in Christ, the confession. For he who promised is faithful. Now he goes to talk about how this is going to happen. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We come to church and we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We gather in homes. We gather in small groups. We go and serve people one-on-one. And he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. If you're not around, then you can't practice this. You can't be encouraged and be an encourager. And he says, but encouraging one another. Don't don't forsake being around the church. We want to encourage you, the writer is saying, to go and be there and encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The longer you're a Christian, the more you want to be around the church. The more you want to be with the church and learn with the church and grow with the church. It doesn't mean that you're never around other friends or family members. But it means this is a very close-knit family. Your fellow believers here in Christ. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage one another, Paul says, and build up one another just as you also are doing. You're already doing it, he says, and keep doing it. Keep building up one another. Paul saw a lot of problems in churches. The Apostle Paul planted all these churches, and it would have been heartbreaking for him to hear about the problems that some of them had. It would have been heartbreaking for him to go back and visit these churches and to see these problems, ungodliness, immorality, backbiting, false teaching, all kinds of sin. But what does he say here? What does he tell Christians to do to handle all of that? He tells them to do exactly the opposite of all that sin. Pray and encourage one another. Now, he'll have specific advice for different sin situations. He'll talk about church discipline in some of his letters. But the major theme is not go out and discipline everybody. The major theme is one of strengthening and encouraging. 
He doesn't encourage them to, to sort of have a group session to air all their grievances. He says, look, encourage one another. Love one another. So many times as Christians, we have these respectable sins. They're called by Jerry Bridges. And we, we all respond like this sometimes when people bring these respectable sins to us. If someone is anxious or frustrated, then we tend to get anxious or frustrated around them. If someone's angry at us, we tend to get angry back at them. Too often we respond in kind. If someone sins against us, sometimes our flesh wants to sin against them. If there's legalism being shown towards us, we tend to want to be legalistic back of our own flesh. Paul says, look, encourage one another. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say repay in kind. In fact, he says, don't repay evil with evil. Don't repay sin with sin. So many times in the New Testament. As believers, we don't want to live like the world. We want to love to be around one another, encourage one another. If we respond in kind to everything, even Christians do to us, then we're just like the world. The world has no hope. The world has no hope. If you sin against somebody in the world, they're going to try to sin right back, maybe in different ways than you sin. We can't be like that. Every time you're with a brother or sister in Christ that is sinning, whether they're sinning through thoughts, through their tongue, through actions, don't follow in that path. Don't just sit by and watch them sin. Respond in encouragement, and that might mean exhortation, but it's also going to include building them up in the faith. Helping them, being with them, seeing them through whatever trial or sin struggle they have. It doesn't do any good to sit around and just dwell on their sin. In, in biblical counseling, the first session is focused on what are your problems? What are your problems that you're coming into here to get help with? The rest of the counseling sessions are not continuing to go back and talk about that story over and over. And it doesn't do us good to be around other Christians and want to encourage them and dwell on their sin. That's the opposite of encouragement. What good does that do? We're supposed to dwell on the things above. We're supposed to dwell on the things that are heavenly, not earthly. Why does he say that? Because we're tempted to dwell on the earthly things. We're tempted to dwell on the things of this world. And forget that there is an eternity waiting for us forever with God. So let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's hear the teaching of the word and obey it. This is Christianity 101. Be doers of the word. Obey it. Live it out. Encourage one another. Love one another. Serve one another. If we're not getting biblical teaching, getting biblical encouragement like Paul gave, then we're just acting like the world. If we don't get it, uh, we don't give it. We get teaching, and we're supposed to give that same kind of teaching. Maybe it's not a sermon. Maybe it's not a Bible study. But through you, the word is to be done, to be lived out. And if we're not doing that, if we're not listening, and we're not giving in that sense, the word, just like the world. The world is great at talking on and on about sins and struggles and issues and this and that. We have to be different. Paul says, I want to be with you. Not so we can talk about the emperor, all his issues, way the Roman Empire is going, you know, they're devaluing the money. And I'm sure people talked about those things in Rome. Are the soldiers going to get paid this week? You know, all of that. But the focus is on the word. The focus is on mutual encouragement. We're to please Christ, not our fellow men. We're to live for the Lord. So with the last question I want to ask you, though, because Paul says, I may be encouraged. How is Paul encouraged. How is he edified by them? He's the Apostle Paul. He's coming to teach and preach. Well, he'll be edified because he sees that what he's doing is a blessing to them and they're responding to it. They're hearing the word and they're responding. When they believe and accept the doctrine he teaches, when they don't reject it, when they believe it and live it out, that's what matters to him. He would love to see that. When they show him love, when they pray for him, when they give him financial support, all of these things will cause him, I'm sure, to weep with tears of joy. Paul had the heart of a true pastor. This is how a pastor is encouraged, by the response of the body. In the 18th century, there was a Reformed Baptist pastor named Andrew Fuller, and he understood this. On, on this verse, he writes about his own church experience as a pastor. He says, a believing 
spiritual, attentive, affectionate audience whose souls glisten in their eyes will produce thoughts in the pulpit which would never have occurred in the pastor's study. What he's saying is the pastor can prepare a sermon, think, you know, okay, this is what I'm going to say. And then when you see the people, the people that you know, the people that you love, the people that you know they need encouragement, and the sin struggles they have, thoughts occur in the preacher's mind that weren't there in the study. But on the other hand, he says, if a minister perceive in his hearers, and especially in those whom he should expect better things, if he perceives unbelief, worldliness, carelessness, or conceit, he's like a ship locked up near the pole. He can't get going out to the ocean. He's locked up. And so he understood. Andrew Fuller understood what Paul understood. It is a great blessing to preach and teach the word. I can tell you here it's a great blessing to me. Just the fact that you're here. You know, you could be anywhere. You could be at any other of the thousands and thousands of churches around the world. And you're here and you're taking in the word. And I see you living it out. I see people encouraging one another. I remember when the church first got started. And we had a, a few people meeting in the home at that time. And I just thought, are we going to be the only ones to have people over for dinner? Or is that going to get going in the church? And eventually it did, you know. And then eventually people started caring for the needs of other people. And to the point today where somebody tells me much later about something, I never knew about it. They were reconciled. These brothers were reconciled months ago. I didn't even hear about it. That's awesome. Oh, this person had the need and you took care of it? That's applying the word of God. Oh, you had this struggle at work and you overcame it? You didn't need to, to come in necessarily and, and get help because you knew what the word said? That's encouraging. But it's just encouraging to be here together on a Sunday. You encourage me so much, more than you can know, by your notes, by your emails, conversations, phone calls all the ways that you bless me. So I want to thank you from my heart for encouraging me. I know that Paul longed to be with the Roman Christians. I get to actually be here with the church. I'm not somewhere else longing to be here. And it is a real blessing. So let's close in prayer and let's make sure that we're constantly praying for these things that I mentioned to be established and to be encouraged by one another's faith. Lord, I do thank you for our time together in the Word this morning. It is a real blessing to gather with the saints. There's no other place I'd rather be at this time, Lord, than right here proclaiming your word to the church. I do thank you so much for your kindness, for your love to this body. Continue to strengthen us, Lord. Help us to be strengthened by the Spirit on the steady diet of your word and help us to encourage one another in the faith. Let us be a real living body of Christ that helps one another, that loves one another. I ask that you would do this out of your kindness, your mercy, your love, and your grace because Christ is our Lord and he died for us. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen.